So we are in the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. And the Apostle Paul, in the middle of this, or at the beginning of this book, he, he just, one thought leads to another when he's talking about the Corinthians, the church being a living letter, and that being more powerful, uh, more authentic than a written letter. And that thought spurs him on to another thought, and that is about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how it applies, how it works itself out in the progress of redemption. And so the passage we're going to read this morning is like this synopsis of this teaching. And he takes almost the entire book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, to unfold the covenants. But in here, Paul just packs it in to these verses. And it's so rich. It's just, this is such rich theological territory that I don't want to rush through it. I want to take my time going through this. So we'll be here for a little while as the Lord leads. But it's crucial that we understand the covenants. And the covenants, in essence, frame Scripture. The covenants are like very important, pivotal points and, and points of continuity of the progress of redemption. And really, to understand the gospel properly, we need to understand the covenants. So that's why we're here. And I want to read, I'm just going to go ahead and read the entire passage again this morning so we can see um, and understand Paul's line of thinking in here. But then I'll just come back and focus in in a few verses. So the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, let's look at verses 5 through 18. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have No glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So having given a a drone view, if you will, an overhead view of the covenants last time, I want to go back and zero in on these first few verses because Paul says says something 
Uh, it's very profound, and it certainly piqued my interest when I read these words. But he calls the, the law a killer. A killer. And then he calls the Old Testament, uh, or the Old Covenant, uh, uh, or parts of it at least, a ministry of death. And, you know, then he goes on to talk about how glorious it was. Now, the new covenant has far surpassed it in glory to the point where it has no glory as compared to the new covenant. But in its day, the, the old covenant had tremendous glory, so much so that Moses, a servant of God, had to veil his face. I'm not, so I'm not used to hearing Paul talk about something so symbolic and beautiful as being an instrument or having like this ministry that actually is a ministry of death. And then in verse 9, he says it has uh, the ministry of condemnation. So there's lots of ministry taking place under the Old Covenant, but part of that ministry is, is a killer, if you will. So it condemns and it kills. So I think to myself, well, how can something so glorious and something so good, and you think about the words, the words of life, the law of God, that are to, to open our eyes to God's beauty. How can it act in that way or serve in that way? He makes it very clear that it is a killer. So what happened? Just to get our theological juices going a little bit, before I jump in any farther, I want to read one verse out of the Gospels and just you tuck it away and you can, it's, it's to pique your interest. And then we'll come back to it. So Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verses, verse 12, um, verse 13, says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So tuck that away. So the letter kills. Well, what's the letter? Well, it's the, he says it's the letter that was written on the stone. What was written on the stone? The Ten Commandments. Moses came down the mountain glowing with the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone written by the very finger of God on the front and back. Why did God give the law, the commandments? Paul says in Galatians 3.19 that they came because of sin. They came because of transgression. So God gives his law to show man how, how short they fall in their concept of holiness and righteousness. It, it demonstrates the difference. So the law is like a schoolmaster. It's a teacher. It's a tutor to show us who God really is and also to show us how far short we fall of his standards of holiness his standards of morality and um, behavior. So God sets forth this standard. And we're, what we're used to hearing in Scripture is that it's a noble standard. It's, it's a good standard. It's a perfect standard. And when understood properly or say when obeyed perfectly, it does lead to life. It is, the, the psalmist calls it a, a light to his path. It shows him where to go. And it can lead to tremendous blessing. It can lead to tremendous prosperity. So 
everything about the law in itself as the highest, most perfect standard for man, it, it's good, holy. So the problem, and Paul makes this clear, technically speaking, the problem is not the standard or the law itself. The problem is the people who read it. The problem is man. The problem is the sinner. So the sinner can read them, but cannot walk them out, cannot keep them, cannot live them. And even the Apostle Paul, who we all admire, who doesn't admire the Apostle Paul's zealousness and passion for the gospel? I mean, he would judge. What a servant of the Lord. And even before he, he came to Christ, he was a passionate man. Uh, he tried, he gave everything he had to keep the law of God. He wanted to do it. But he realized when he, when the veil was lifted off of his eyes, that he was not doing the job that he thought he was. Uh, he thought he was doing well until he discovered what the law really said. And then Romans 7, 9 through 13, listen to how he describes the effect it had on his life. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. This is his terminology. I died. So the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. So it wasn't the law in and of itself. It was my own sinfulness or sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law is good, but it shows or reveals sin for what it really is. And because we're sinners, it reveals us for what we really are. And so it does not bring life to us, though that's, it has the potential to do that. So it, it kills. It's got this ministry of death. As a matter of fact, it came after Paul, he says, and it killed him. Let's just think about this a little bit. What ways does the law kill? I'll just, look, I'll just mention two. And first, I'll just call the living death because it's not a physical death. And Paul, when he's saying this, is, is alive. So, but he says, I died. So it kills us in this sense. Paul thought that he was doing well until he discovered the law and it just it, it wrecked him. It, it ruined him because it, it, it altered his whole perception of his self and his own, his own morality and his self-esteem and his self-worth and how others may have looked up to him as being this model Jew. So it ruined his view of self. In a sense, he was going through life thinking, man, I got all A's on my report card. <laughs> Check this out. I got all A's. God's given me all A's. But then he found out God wasn't giving him all A's. And actually, he, he gets a failing report. So that's quite a transition there, he's getting F. So, so it just ruined him. It ruined his self-confidence, his sense of achievement, his sense of well-being. You can imagine it's, it's, it's the uh, kind of feeling of being sick and, and dying 
The law can have that effect on us. So he's an ethical failure, moral failure, if you will. And then it goes farther than that. And it goes into what I call the, the, the curse of death or a cursed death. So not only does he realize that he went from straight A's to F's, but the law also says that those who can't obey it are under a curse from God. So you like this living death, but then you have this curse awaiting you. You're under this dark cloud. And it's not like a curse that says, oh, your, all your hair is going to fall out or your, your well's going to dry up. It's this curse of being alienated from God forever. It's the wrath of God. It's God's punishment for the sin that we have committed. And Paul says it, it, it damns us. It kills us. And so you, when you are privy to this, when you grasp these concepts, it just totally sinks us and who we think we are before God and who we think in this we are in this world. It gives us a failing report card and a death sentence and a curse to go with it. So it's kind of hard to feel good after this kind of understanding, more like you just see yourself walking to the gallows. So, and by the way, that's what the law did to me. I I kind of, even though I knew I was a rebel, I justified my sin thinking, well, I'm not as bad as other people, so I'm pretty confident God's going to let me in. I may not get the welcome everybody else does. But when I, when God opened my eyes to the law, I had this knowing and this terrible feeling, I am doomed unless I run to God. So it, it killed me in that way as well. So the path of life, yes, but it's unattainable to sinners. So Paul says it's a ministry of condemnation. It's an absolute killer. Now, why would we even need such a uh, gruesome ministry, if, if you will? Well, because on our own, we, mankind, if you group us all together, we have a tendency to think we're, we're okay. That was my tendency. And I was not, I was at the bottom of the class as far as behavior. Not the worst, but the bottom. And yet I still gave myself a passing grade. Because I compared myself to others. And what the law does, and the reason we need it is because that's our tendency. The sin in us just sneaks in there and we will justify just about anything. And the more passionate we are about it, or th then we justify it even worse to the point where we can even become blind to our own sin. And it's, it gets even more dangerous the, the more religious we are. Because we, we think that, well... I, I go to church and I do these things. And so that's why I'm going to get into heaven when the time comes. And we start to trust in what little bit of good or what great good we may see in our minds. Do that. That's what's pleasing God. And we're doing it on our own. So it's kind of like I, I have. Maybe I don't have a lot going for me, but I got it just enough to scoot over the line. As opposed to seeing myself as bankrupt. 
when I look at the law and myself the way God sees it, the way I should come away is I am bankrupt. I am destitute. I have absolutely nothing. So earlier I tried to pique your interest and get your theological juices rolling with this parable that um, Jesus told in Luke. So let me just read that again. The tax collector. The tax collector, Jesus said, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18. So look at this picture. Here is this guy, and he's, he's removed himself. He's, he has alienated himself. They didn't kick him out. Get out of here, you sinner. He removed himself voluntarily because he was ashamed. Uh, if you will, he got his spiritual report card. I guess he did an evaluation of his heart or his soul before God, because that's who he's conversing with. And he realizes that he has a, a, a failing spiritual Report card, and because of it, he is ashamed of himself to the point where he doesn't want to be around people. He doesn't want anybody to get any idea of just how shameful he is or what he has done. And he's, he's not walking around with his chest puffed out. Things are not good with him. He's feeling sick. He's, he's down. And he's so feeling so ashamed and alienated, he won't even look up. I mean... Have you ever been there before where you're just so ashamed you can't even look people in the eye? Because of what you, the sensation of your inner being. So he couldn't even look anyone in the eye, particularly God. He's alienated. He's, he's, he's feeling like the truth. He's feel, I, I've betrayed God. I've betray, and by betraying God, I've betrayed the universe. I've done terrible things. So he's sick. It's ruined him. It's ruined him, his sense of self-worth, achievement, whatever he thought he was in the world. And he's crying. He's crying out. He's beating his chest. You know, when, I would imagine it's a, and I know it's a parable, but if it was real, it would be that grueling kind of cry where you just realize, I just lost everything. Everything I thought I had, everything I looked to for security and safety, everything that I hoped in has just been wiped away from me. I have nothing. He beats his chest. Now, this is what happens when you go to thinking that you have it and realizing that you don't. And I find it so interesting that Jesus is the one that told this parable. This came. This is part of his you know, red-letter teaching, if you will. So he, he made up this character. Now remember, parables aren't true, but they could be. So he made up this character to make a point. And the point he is striving to make is that this is where man stands with God. This is what man must do to be right with God. And it, it becomes crystal clear. So the law humbled him. The law broke him. And the point of all this is that when the law does that to a man, 
It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. That's the point. When we, when we compare our lives with God's standard and we realize how far we've failed and it ruins us, that's the point. That's what it's designed to do. It means the law worked, the design of the law. Now, before the law was written on stone, you know, man knew he was a sinner, but he wasn't sure without that authoritative standard, how far have I fallen? You you can look at different societies in in our modern day, and we have uh, different levels of depravity and morality. So before the law, so the Ten Commandments weren't necessarily new because the Ten Commandments, they reveal the character of God. That's eternal and unchanging. It wasn't like they'd never existed. People knew. I mean, Cain slew Abel. He knew that was wrong. It wasn't like, well, you can't. It wasn't wrong until the Ten Commandments came through Moses. No, that was already there. It was the fabric of the universe. But now God puts it in stone. And so man has no excuse. But in Acts 17.30, the Apostle Paul gives us a little historical lesson. And he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, the whole world, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the whole world is accountable for the message of God. The time of patience and tolerance, um, how far you lost sight of his standards is over. The measurement is here. And the line has been drawn. We don't always know how far we are removed from God and his ways. And I think when you look at cultures that are more what we might consider godless, then you see more godlessness. There's something to say for having these standards or being a people, even if it's just for religious purposes, there's such a thing as a morality based on the standards and the law of God. And it serves society well when we have this. But when we remove God and his standards from the fabric of our life, then we're left to ourselves to try to figure out how to give it a go. And that is never good. And I think that what we're seeing in our society, and ever since I've been a Christian, people have been saying we're a godless nation. We need to repent. We need a revival and so forth. And it's only gotten worse. But it's not as bad as it's ever been. You know, our society is actually, uh, we're just used to good, <laughs> good uh, nation. We're used to good, prosperous terms. But we are watching before our very eyes what happens to people when they don't have an authoritative standard of morality. They're, by, by kicking God out, if he's not the one to tell us what to do and not to do, then who gets to sit in that position? Well, our society has decided that we get to sit in that position. We get to determine for ourselves. You get into the whole relativism argument. There's no objective truth that we live under, that we submit to. Therefore, we get to create our own truth. How do we do that? Well, we just put our heads together and make it work. It doesn't work. 
And today what has happened is that we now we have decided that tr truth comes out of our own mind, but it stemmed from whatever we're the most passionate about or the most emotional about. Have you seen that? So you have groups of people that are screaming and demanding certain behaviors from the rest of society. Why? Because I said so. Well, why did you say so? Because I feel so strong about it. Well, why do you feel so strong about it? Because it provokes me. But you, you can never go back to anything that anybody, that everybody could ever agree with because it all just stems from the individual. And whenever a society is left to themselves, to where... Because I said so, like as parents, right? When you say because I said so, it works when the kids are younger mostly. Kids, it's supposed to work. Kids, it's supposed to work. But when the kids get older, you, you can't play that card all the time because I said so. Because you are their authority. But when they become adults, then who's their authority? You don't stay under mom and dad's thumb all the time. They need somebody else to come under, and ideally that would be God. But we are in a because-I-said-so society. And it is so dangerous and it's so sad to see how lost and confused we are. And what do we see? Is it working? Is giving ourselves the mantle of authority of truth working in our society? No. Everybody is suffering. Usually the kids, women and kids always get the short end of things. When it comes to breaking God's law. And we just see. We just see divisiveness. It is not good. Or we don't have a good. Uh, compass. When it comes to an inner sense. Of right and wrong. And yet here's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're handing out tests. That we wrote to people. And we're our own answer sheets. So we can just change the answer. To fit our own emotions. And our own passions. And it's not taking us to a better place. So the worst thing we can do is to pretend that we create our own standard for humanity across the board. When we compare ourselves to ourselves, it is dangerous. We need the authority of God. And God offers to save us from our sin and our depravity in this sense. It shouldn't take much imagination to realize how far we fall from God's law. You just take the, the first commandment uh, when he, he narrows them all down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Who has done that? I mean, it shouldn't take us much imagination to realize, that, well, you know what? I, did, I loved a lot of other things a whole lot more than you, and it comes out in my everyday life decisions. So we could just go right on down the list. Or thou shalt not covet. There's so many things I have wanted that I haven't had that other people have had. The point is that if we look at God's laws with any kind of sense and if we care about anything truly other than ourselves, we'll come away like the tax collector beating our chest. The law will break down our self-defense mechanisms and leave us Ruined and hopefully, ideally, crying out for God's mercy. That we would run to him as our way of escape. So, why does Jesus even have to come up with such a character in his parable? Because the Jews of that day, some of the Jews were not getting it. They were not landing where this character in his parable landed. So now let me just read the entire parable to you. 
Again, Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So this is an example of people who, who uh, decide to compare themselves to themselves. They use the wrong standard and they came out thinking I'm shining. And so Jesus has to tell this parable, hopefully to show them where they really stand with God. And it's not in a good place. And he's saying, you should actually be over here with this tax collector. So they trusted in themselves. If you trust in yourself and you think you're okay, why would you humble yourself? And so they did not humble themselves. And then they did not come to faith or cry out for God's mercy. But what did they do? They refused to see they were falling short. Now, it gets complicated, but what... Where they got their self-righteousness is that rather than keeping the moral law, because some, t- some uh, time along the path, they probably realized they couldn't do that, as we all realize it, if we're honest with ourselves. So they turned to more of the ceremonial law keeping. And they became experts at keeping ceremonial laws. Like, like um, Jesus said, I tithe. You know, I fast, I keep ceremonial laws. So the external things, they like, man, I can do this. It's hard, but I can do this. And they counted that as their righteousness. And what happens, that is so dangerous to go through external uh, discipline and motions and ceremonies without changing the internal heart, which is the whole point of the law. And it's dangerous because then we think, well, I go to church or I have my devotion or whatever, and so I'm right with God without ever even changing our hearts, without ever even looking deep and seeing that we are sinners in need of salvation. Sin can so twist our minds that there could be multitudes of people. And this isn't just, this isn't a Jewish problem. This is a humanity problem. That's the, also the point. It's anybody with rituals or religion that trusts in that instead of the mercy of Christ. Now, that is sobering to realize that we could actually go through life thinking we're close to God because we're good at ceremonies and rituals. And we never even took a close look at our heart to see that we actually got a failing report card. That's why sometimes it's so hard to reach people that are trusting in external means. I saw some of this. I grew up Catholic, and I'm not bashing Catholics. It's it's a humanity problem. But as a kid, I saw adults, you know, young adults come into church, and you've never seen somebody so holy. I mean, the genuflect, light a candle, whatever. But then I see them the rest of the week, and it is nothing like the reverence they showed for that 45-minute Mass. 
Now, I'm calculating this as a kid. Can you really be that close? To, can, can, you, can you fake your way into heaven? I mean, how does that work? And honestly, it, it was a put-off. It was a turn-off. Because I thought, well, if God's real, he's not going to let you get away with that. That can't be right. And it's not right. We have to deal with our hearts. And I'm so thankful that the killer got me. Romans 10, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They thought they were, he told the parable because they thought they were getting A's, but they were getting F's. How is your report card this morning? You know, what, who's, who is giving you the test and who's got the answer sheet? It has to be God. John 8, they said to me, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father. So Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, trying to remove the veil, giving them truth, giving them opportunity. We're not born of sexual immorality. So in other words, you, you call me a sinner? We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are one of your father, the devil, and you will do. And your will is to do what your father desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's harsh because, you know, if you, you might heard the words, you're a chip off the old block. You're just like your daddy. That's what he's saying. You're just like your daddy. And you know who your daddy is? Satan. He's a liar and he's a murderer. But that's what your actions are showing. Don't be deceived. The real you comes out. They're dead and they don't even know it. The letter kills. And we have to be careful that we don't just concentrate on the externals and put on the show. Though it is a pretty impressive trick. But rather deal with our hearts and beat on our chests if we do not see our hearts as God sees them then we're not going to have that sense of despair and we're not going to run to God for salvation we might run to some other quick fix but we won't run to God so Paul's point or challenge here is he as he looks and compares the glories of the covenant is the law is to show you where you really stand with God to break you, yes, to kill you, so you see yourself as bankrupt. And then, and we'll look at this next time, the life comes when you run to God, not based on your works or your report card, but strictly on the mercy of God, which means we're undeserving on the basis of Christ's report card because he gets straight A's. That's humbling, and that's how we get into the kingdom of God. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, and that's what the new covenant is all about.
May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.